Welcome back this evening. I hope you've had a good day. I have had a good day. I got to spend some time in a palace shop, which is sort of close to what we do at home. And I got a good Belizean supper, and what more could you want than that? So I've enjoyed my day. And just by fair warning to our song leader, if you could just have a song ready then at the end of the service on the appropriate, we'll just close with that. I uh, just don't want to catch you off guard near the end. Before I left home yesterday, my son came to me, my five-year-old, and he was uh, a little put out about having to have me leave. And he said, Dad, why do we have to go to South Boston? They already have God in their hearts. <laughs> and uh, I believe I understand why he said that. He doesn't like to see his dad leave. And I believe I can agree with the premise of his statement. I believe we are among a people here who has God in their hearts. And I pray it's that way. The kingdom is in our heart. Our heart belongs to the kingdom. And uh, we live with this awareness of eternal realities. We uh, are okay with being different because we serve a different king. We are okay with the, some of the knocks and bruises of life because we know Jesus. And so last night we talked about the extent and the influence of the kingdom of God and how, how inseparable the kingdom that we're part of here on earth is with the kingdom in heaven that where God dwells, his throne, his seat, his authority. And... Uh, Everywhere this kingdom is found, it's found because there is submission to the king there. There is a willingness to bow to and cooperate with and agree with the king of kings. And that's what allows the kingdom to reign in our hearts. Now, there's many wonderful things about this kingdom. You can read about it in Revelation. You can read about it from Genesis to Revelation. But the most wonderful thing in all this kingdom is the king himself. And when we receive the, the kingdom, by necessity, we receive the king along with it. When we uh, enter into life, we do it because the king invites us in. When we look forward to heaven, it's because we look forward to being where he is. He's the glory of it. He's the focus of it. He is the soul of it. And I guess if, if Jesus would leave heaven, it wouldn't be heaven anymore. The glory would die. The soul would die of it. I don't, think, uh, I don't think the golden streets and the river of life would mean much at all if it weren't for Jesus in the midst of it. The music would stop. And I believe that wherever the kingdom of God is found on earth, whatever language, whatever culture, whatever color, we have one thing in common. We all love the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know we don't love him like we should, but I hope there's something of love in our hearts for him. Sometimes, at least I struggle with this, underestimating and maybe underappreciating the role that Jesus plays in current life and current circumstances. We tend to uh, view Jesus in two places. We look at him as a historic figure. It's what he was when he was on earth, what he was when he was with, with men, and maybe what he will be when he comes back. Uh, we read about that in Revelation, what he's like, what he's coming for. And they're both correct. Uh, they're both correct, but then our tendency is to sort of view ourselves as sliding along somewhere between that Jesus and that Jesus. We're trying to make it, trying to make it work. We're trying to hold each other up and uh, doing the best we can. But in reality, Jesus is not only historic nor futuristic. Jesus is present. And so Jesus is just as real here in 2020 as he was in 5 and 10 and 30 and 100 AD. And he never changes, and he's always present. And we need to know him like that. When Jesus said, Lord, I'm with you always, he meant 2020, not just 70 or 35. 
A.D. And we need this understanding because the kingdom life is a hollow life unless Jesus is in it. And life is too confusing and too distracting and too dangerous to go through without him. And having this current understanding of his role in my life, we need a constant, a personal view of a God in the person of Jesus Christ and an expectation. Part of, I believe, what revival is, is just living with an expectation of God that helps us realize him and, and understand that what he's doing now and, and what he wants to do in our midst and in our life. Uh, so he wants to give us that this evening. So I'd like to take this time this evening to, uh, to speak about this a little bit, this person we call Jesus. There's several views the scripture gives us. There's an understanding of God that Jesus shows us. There's an offer he came to give us. And I just hope our lives can be enriched a bit tonight as we think about and brag about, talk about our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is doing uh, for his people. Now, Scripture reveals Jesus in several aspects, and I'm sure our view is very limited because Scripture talks enough to give us an understanding, but Jesus being eternal, I'm sure there's a lot about who he is that we'll only understand in eternity. But from our limited view, we view it in three phases. We view Jesus' existence in a sort of a pre-incarnate case where he is with the Father as the Word uh, before he ever came to earth. We view him that way through the writing of the New Testament. Some of the writers uh, delved back into his pre-incarnate existence. Then we see him in the Gospels. We read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what he does while he's here on earth. And that's where we learn the most about him because of what he represented when he came. Then we look at him in Revelation, and we see him there as a glorified Christ, the coming king, and something of the, what we might look forward to in eternity. We see those three different aspects. And it'd be great to look at all three tonight, string them together, and make sure that's all part of understanding of who he is. We probably won't get to the last one for the lack of time, but I'd like to look at some of these things this evening. So I'd like to take us to several scriptures and read them sort of in quick succession. All three touch on similar themes, and maybe pick out a couple of uh, themes that talk about who he is. And we're going to go to John 1 first. These are talking about the pre-incarnate uh, views of Christ and uh, who he is. John 1, verse 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here we have Jesus referred to as the word of God, the active, creative verb of God, God's spoken word. In Colossians 1, we'll read that next. Colossians 1, just picking out a few verses from these first two chapters in Colossians 15 through 19, it says this of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. 
Let's jump to chapter 2, verse 3, in whom it says, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Jesus Christ, God invested everything about God that was wise and understanding and put that in one person, Jesus Christ, all knowledge and wisdom. And then 9 and 10 yet of this chapter. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So we see many things here. Jesus, the image of God, Jesus having preeminence in the, in the church, in the earth, in heaven, a superlative position above all things. This is some of what's pointed out here in this passage. And then yet in Hebrews 1, three verses in Hebrews 1, the first three verses. It says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance obtained a much more excellent, a more excellent name than they and so on. So here are some tremendous truths about Jesus and who he is. And much of this refers to his position with the Father even before he came to earth. And some of this leads then into uh, what he came to do and what his current position is for us as his followers and his, uh, his disciples and believers. Now, the one thing that's obvious and clear here that Jesus did not begin to exist in Bethlehem. Jesus existed long before that. He he did not begin in creation as a created being. He began long before that. And it's difficult for us to understand these things because everything we know around us has a start and has a finish. And so the people around us were born sometime. The houses we live in were built sometime. The trees in our yard sprouted one time. Uh, even the customs we have, the culture we have, had its roots somewhere, so all of it can be traced back to something. But here we have Jesus, who says that with the Father from, from whatever beginning there wasn't, um, Jesus preexisted with the Father. You know, eternity future is a little, hard, a little easier to grasp because we're thinking that way, but to think back to something that didn't ever begin, to me, is mind-boggling to try to imagine. I find it that way. Jesus had that eternal relationship with the Father. Somehow, I guess the Father never existed without the Son. The Son was always an expression of the Father. I don't understand those things, but that's what I understand from, for Scripture to mean. Jesus, in these three passages we've read, is creator. In Genesis 1, it says that uh, God created. It says the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. And in Psalm 33, 6, it said, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. In Hebrews 11:3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And here in John and in Hebrews and in Colossians, it says that Jesus did it. So the word was Jesus. The active expression of what the Father was doing was carried out in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only was he the creator, but he's the sustainer of everything that was created. Uh, the same word that gave existence to things is required to keep things in existence. And I know we have cycles 
There's the water cycle. There's the carbon cycle. There are other cycles in our, in our, uh, in our earth that makes things work. But I believe that left on autopilot, these things would not just be cycles. They would just fall apart. It takes the constant will of God to keep them in existence and keep them going. Second Peter says that in 3, 5, and 7. By the word of God, the heavens were of old, um, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, but the heavens and the earth, which now are, are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the word of God that created also sustains until it's time to wrap everything up and bring it to a conclusion. You know, uh, creation is an amazing thing, and I love to think about that. The instincts of honeybees, the habits of birds, and the way things work. Beautiful thing to think about. Everything, I think last evening devotion, I talked, uh, the, the brother talked about the molecule, and then the atom, and, and men keep digging. They try to figure out what holds all this together, and they're finding not only nuclei, and not only electrons and protons, but now there's quarks, and there's other things. They're trying to figure this out. They're looking for a God particle. And I don't know what point they just give up and accept that, that it's God himself that holds it all together. And somewhere there is science uh, stops explaining. And God is there to hold it together. Jesus is one with the Father. He is the visible expression of an invisible God. It says it in different ways. The word was with God, the word was God. It says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. And how do you take and make a visible image of an invisible thing? That's what Jesus is. He's a visible image of an invisible thing. Now if I take a picture of you and show it to you, that's an image, but it's not the express image because it's paper. If I take a video of you and hear you talking, you can play it back, see you walk around and move and speak. And that might be closer, but it's still not an image, the express image. Uh, but Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And something of the exact likeness and all the essence of the Father was placed in human flesh in a way that Jesus could say that and tell the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't know how it works, but somehow the relationship between Jesus and the Father is almost like the same essence in a tolerable intensity. Uh, maybe something like the sun. The sun is out there 93 million miles away, unapproachable. Uh, you wouldn't get very close at all before anything you were in would be consumed and burn and melt. But across those 93 million miles comes rays and energy, and it's just what the earth needs to warm it. And it's not exactly the sun, but it's the same thing as the sun. And we have the warmth here because the sun is there and sending its rays to us at the level we need. Something like the ocean, Gulf of Mexico. It's far away. I don't know. Probably a lot of people in South Boston never saw the Gulf of Mexico except when it rained today. This water comes from the ocean. The clouds come across. And the rain that falls out is the same stuff. It's the same element. It's from the same source as what's down in the Gulf of Mexico. And I guess in a way you could look out at a mud puddle and say, I've just seen the Gulf of Mexico because that's where it came from. And the Father sent the Son to bring us what we needed at the intensity we could manage, at the, what, exactly what we needed for what we need in our, our own lives. It's something like a nuclear power plant, I guess. Millions of volts 
tremendous power. Anything you would plug into that thing would be instantly burned to shreds. But here you have it in your wires outside your house, reduced and reduced to just the right voltage to plug in your coffee maker and make it work. And that's a little illustration. John 1 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And the glory we beheld was maybe not like we expected. See, when God came down on Mount Sinai, that thing shook, and it trembled, and it thundered, and the mountain was burnt, and men were very afraid as long as they could see it. But 40 days later, they were turning from it to build an idol to worship. They saw his glory, but it didn't have a deep impact on them. And throughout history, God sent prophets, God sent people to try to turn his people back to the truth and promise judgment and preach the word, but God's people didn't change. They mistreated the prophets, they persecuted them, killed the messengers of God. And 2,000 years later, God did a different thing. God approached humanity in a different way and prepared a human body and himself stepped into it and came among us like that. Something so different. And we, we often ask ourselves this question, why, why did he do it? Well, what was it for? And why would he take it upon himself to do that? There's, there's several reasons, I believe, beyond just the basic reason he wanted to die for our sins and redeem us to himself. And one reason he did it was was to become one with humanity. And for God to take on flesh, I don't think it was a light thing. And I don't know how you view this, but I believe that God was God until he decided to take on flesh, and then forevermore Jesus will be the God-man that will be forever identified with humanity. And even in heaven, if he bears scars in his hands, he is still representing us and identifying with us as his redeemed people. And it was a, a decision to permanently identify with this part of his creation. And that, that identification required uh, identifying on every level. And if you go back to, to Isaiah 53, it talks about what he was willing to do. Maybe worth just looking at that briefly. Isaiah 53, verse 2, I believe it is. What the extent he was willing to go to identify himself with us. Well, verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and is acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him smitten, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we were healed. And so this representation. Jesus decided to take upon himself all the experience that men took, that li they lived. He walked the same earth, faced the same losses, uh, faced the same temptations. Jesus, or scripture says there's no temptation except that Jesus would not have, or Jesus was tempted in all points like we are. And the reason he did that was that he would earn for himself the perfect right to come to every man and every age in every place, and be able to say, I am one with you. I have experienced what you went through. And uh, 
I understand how you feel. I, wonder, I know what life is like. I'm not just looking at you from up there, but I've been through all of this. And he can say, I understand it. I've been here. I've been there. And Jesus even did more than that. He did not only experience his own sorrowful life, but he also said, I'm here to take on your sorrows, your burdens, be bruised for your iniquities. And Jesus not only can say, I'm one of you, he can also say, I'm enough to handle all of your burdens and all of your struggles and take them upon myself and walk with you in it. He not only says, I'm one with you, he says, I'm here for you. And that's what he offers tonight. Jesus is the care of God personified, as it were, as he walked among us. And all the compassion that God had toward humanity was somehow wrapped up and placed in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came for that. That's one thing that he came to do. The other thing he came to do was this. He came to represent God before men. God's word made flesh. I don't know how many of you are bosses of crews or have responsibilities that way, but can you imagine a foreman trying to explain to his crew how to do a complicated thing? And he tries to draw a picture. They don't understand that. He tries to explain it. He doesn't understand that. And he can't stay there himself. But what, what, what a wonderful thing if you just take the words he said and put them in a body and put them in boots and tell them, now you stand here and work with them until, until I come back. The very words that he wanted them to understand placed in human flesh to do the very thing that he meant for them to do. Sometimes we wish we could do that. Clone ourselves. Now through history, God has revealed himself in several ways. We have the whole book of nature and it's, it's so detailed that scripture says that men are without excuse just by looking at what God has created. We're without excuse. We should recognize his handiwork and his wisdom in what he's created. And I know nature can point men in the right direction, but I think very few have found God on nature alone. We uh, at some point need the word of God, and that's the next revelation. He, he gave the law, he gave the Old Testament, the prophets, the word, the explanations, the revelations that are recorded for men. That's the more, that's the more perfect revelation of God. But we read the verse in Hebrews that says, God hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And to me, that is the final and most complete revelation of God we'll ever have. In fact, the word of God by itself needed the example of Christ to make some of it make sense. And so he came as a living example of the written word so that men may look at that example and understand what God really meant through his word. And we have this abundantly clear in the Mount of Transfiguration when the three chosen disciples went up with Jesus and for those few moments they saw something of the flesh veil of Christ uh, maybe pulled back a little bit and the glory of God shining through him. His face became white, uh, bright, his clothes became white and they were transfixed and had never seen anything like this. They saw Moses there and Elijah there. Now, now think about that a little bit, who they were talking to. Here was Jesus, here was Elijah and here was Moses. Now, uh, in the mind of those disciples, the most important two people in their religious understanding was the one that represented the law and the one that represented the prophets. They had standing before them personified the law and the prophets. So here you had Moses and here you had Elijah. And here you had Jesus. 
And so Peter, in his Peterish nature, started talking about making a tent for all of them. Let's enshrine them up here. We can get Moses here and Elijah here and Jesus here and they'll all be up on this mountain. And then this voice came. said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And that voice said, Moses was good in his time. Elijah was important in his time. This is my son. Hear him. And what a beautiful conclusion to that. They, when, they, when they were so afraid, then they rose up and they saw no man save Jesus only. And that to me is a defining moment. God is saying that Jesus is here to represent God before men. And this is the most perfect uh, revelation of God that we will ever have. And Jesus came not to berate us, but he came to show us how it's done. He's a living example of the essence of what God meant. We read about loving our neighbor. And maybe we don't know how that looks until Jesus comes and shows us how to do it. We read about a relationship with God, but maybe we don't know what that looks like until we see Jesus doing it. And that is the living example of what God meant to get across in his word. So we look at him as our living window into the will of God as we see him live his life and teach his teaching and show us how it's done. And the third thing that God, Jesus, came to do, and he said something here that many men loathe him for, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And he's showing us that he is the only access that men have to the Father. There's no other name, no other door, no other access save through his Son. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Jesus is the only qualified one to give us that access. Number one, only Jesus can perfectly represent God. There's nobody else that can. He is the express image. And anyone else that would try to represent God would be a warped and uh, imperfect impression of who God is. But Jesus is the express image of God. At the same time, Jesus is the only one that can adequately represent us before God. Because he lived this life in a sinless way. And through his endless life, he becomes our eternal uh, mediator. And he's the only one that can do that for us. He will never fudge on God's holy standard and he'll never misrepresent or lack in mercy toward humanity. So he has the perfect ability to do that. That's why he is the door. And anything else is something less than uh, what God meant. What Christ is made to me. These are some things that we... Uh, look at in scripture and some things we understand about him. But when, Je when we really want to understand about Jesus and what he did for humanity and what he did for us, we read the gospels. We go there and read what Jesus did, what his teachings were, and so on. And that's in the context of the pre-incarnate life, that's in the context of his coming again. But there's at least two things I want us to recognize when we read the gospels. I think, I believe this to be true. First of all, in the Gospels, we read about Jesus doing a few things for a few people. But what Jesus did for the few, he did it to illustrate what he can do for everyone. 
See, Jesus in flesh did not have the opportunity to live in South Boston or visit every nation on the globe. But what he did for the few represents what he wants to do for the whole, for everyone. See, when he touched a deaf man's ears and a blind man's eyes and a leper's head, he wanted us to know that when we have needs and when we cry out to him, we can expect that the same Jesus with the same compassion also hears and has the ability to do the same as he did. When he stayed up late that night to talk to Nicodemus, he wants all of us to know that if we stay up late talking to Jesus, he's perfectly okay with that. He's good with that. Uh, he, he would give just as much time to you as he did to Nicodemus, just as much attention, personal attention, as he did to Nicodemus. When he stopped under Zacchaeus' tree and said, hey, come down, I'm going to your house today. He wants us to know that he's got time for us and that uh, he notices us in a crowd. He knows exactly where we're at. He knows what we struggle about. He sees past our shyness, and he's just as likely, he would be just as likely to visit your house as Zacchaeus' house. When Jesus heard the blind man calling beside the road and stopped to call him to himself, we can know for sure that he will always hear us, no matter how busy life is, no matter how noisy things are, Jesus never misses a cry. And so as you read the New Testament, read it that way, that what he did for others, he can do for you. The second thing, when we read the New Testament, we must look at Jesus and what he accomplished and what he does. He's doing it as a forerunner. He's doing it as an older brother. And his accomplishments, his abilities come to bear on my behalf. And so his victory over sin and death is my victory. His seat in heavenly places is my seat. His access to the Father provides me with one. His inheritance is my inheritance. Scripture says that. And so we need to look at that and uh, take it personally. His spirit, his joy, his peace, he leaves it for us. He offers it to us, wants us to have it. And Jesus came as many things, and we read about in the New Testament, but he continues in the same attitude toward humanity, the same ability in 2020. There's two facts here that are hard to dispute. One is that Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin. I guess Jesus is the worst enemy that sin ever had because he came to put an end to it. But Jesus also came as a sinner's friend. In fact, the greatest friend the sinner ever had is Jesus Christ. And in Luke 7, 34, it says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Now, that was meant as slander. That was meant as scorn. And the re there's a reason people called him that. They said that he was, what well, he saw him eating with publicans, saw him walking with the lower class and the poor, uh, talking with people of that sort, the outcast sort. And they did not call him a friend of sinners because he participated in their sin, but because he related to them as people. And they didn't know how true that was, how real that was. Uh, in fact, that's even prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Catch these three things. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Three things he has done on behalf of sinners. He was numbered with them in his birth, in the registry. His name was written there right along with all the rest. In the rumors about his life, you're a son of who knows who and you are a, you know, rumored there. In his death between thieves all his life, it seems to me that in the eyes of the world, Jesus was identified more with the sinful, needy people than the pious, church-going people. That was where Jesus' mission was, and that was what he was about. And that's why they called him a friend of sinners. He was not only numbered with them, but he bare the sin of many. He took their sin on them. All the sins and all the consequences of all the sinners and all the graveyards and all the world came together on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he made intercession for transgressors. And praise the Lord he did. I, I guess he makes intercession for the transgression of the innocent. Those people that don't know better and do it wrong. He makes intercession for them. But not only them. He makes intercession for the old and the resistant, hardened sinner. And he's the one that pleads with the Father. He's the one that comes to the... When the, when the owner of the vineyard comes and sees the fig tree without fruit these three years. And says, it's not doing anything. Let's just cut it down. Jesus says... Let's give it one more year. Let me try one more time. Let's give him another chance. Let's give him another year of hearing the gospel. Let's, let's let him have another accident and make him think. Let's, do, let's try a couple more things until he'll repent. One more encounter with the truth. Jesus is a friend of the sinner because he wants the good of the sinner. We need to be careful lest we think that we need to make ourselves somewhat better before Christ would accept us. We need to make ourselves more presentable. And sometimes we think that the kind of sin that we've committed or the kinds of things we've been involved in somehow disqualifies us to come to Christ. But the very reason we hesitate to come is the best reason we have to come. The sin that we feel disqualifies us is the very thing that qualifies us the more. Because Jesus said he came to bear the transgressions of many. And uh, if we tonight have committed one sin, then that qualifies us to come to the Savior. If we have committed many sins, we're, just as, we're more qualified to come to the Savior. We're, we're just as qualified as he came for that. Jesus came as a solution to the curse. And if you go back in Genesis 3, it talks about the pronouncement of, of uh, judgment on Adam and Eve. And there's one word in common between those two pronunciations. To Eve, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. To Adam, he said, you'll till the, fruit, till the ground and in sorrow you'll eat bread. And I believe that word, sorrow, has been the story of humanity from, from the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit to 2020 right now. Every stage of life, every place in culture, men have experienced it. It's been multiplied a million times over. I was in Guatemala two weeks ago, just got back, and a couple of young guys were with me. I wanted to show them around a little bit, so I drove them into the cemetery in Guatemala City. And 
It's a large cemetery. It's been there probably 140 years since the 1880s about. And if you drive in the front gates, this thing is several city blocks long and maybe not quite as deep. And in the front, there's rich people's graves. There's, uh, there's an Egyptian pyramid there, probably some Egyptian people buried there. And they bury above ground, not below ground. There's uh, the American section, like a sort of colossal thing where they're buried. An English section, maybe uh, different family graves. But toward the back, you find the walls of graves. And these things are built up probably eight niches high, and they're double thick, so you could bury on this side and on this side, and they're hundreds and hundreds of feet long, large graves. And so if you bury someone, you have to go to the registry office and find a place to put him. Then you have to open the hole up, a little concrete thing, and slide the casket in, and then cement the front shut. They put a marker on it after a while. And when you walk in there and know that there are eight graves high, times two because there's some in the back, and these things are maybe five graves and 10 feet wide, and these things go for 100 yards, and there's another one for 100 yards, and just, it's colossal. There are lots of dead people in that place. And I've been to a few funerals there, and others like it. And the one family I'm thinking about especially is a tragic family. He was a drunkard, and uh, he, he died of an overdose of alcohol. The wife and some of the daughters were church members. That's why we got close to this family. That was his demise. One of the sons uh, was growing up to be a criminal, and God saved him from that by allowing him to have an accident. He was killed. I remember the last time I saw him down in the center of town, and before I got to see him again, he died. And uh, 18 years old, or 19, and he was buried. One of the daughters lived a very immoral life. She had five children from four different fathers. And she tried to serve the Lord for a time. I think she turned back after a time. And just in the last couple of years, I heard that she had surgery for appendicitis and died after about a month in the hospital. And one of the sons that she was raising, along with her mother and her widowed mother and family, was hanging out with the wrong crowd and got shot and killed several years ago. So in the span of 10 years, all these funerals, all these people. And so when I drive in a graveyard, I remember the grief of one funeral and the sorrow of one funeral. And think about all these funerals, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of funerals. And each one sends its shockwaves out into humanity, out into society. They carry this with them when they go back out, the sorrow and the grief with that. And that's just a story of humanity. It goes from all the way back at the beginning all the way to now, and there's other sorrows besides. And I'm so thankful that Jesus way back in... Or, or, God predicted back in Genesis 3, he shall bruise thy heel, thou shalt crush its head. And God is predicting even then a victory over sin and the curse. And I'm so glad that Paul wrote what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus came to do. The sorrow of the curse, the sting of death, the effects of the fall to erase it. And only there can we find it, nowhere else. Jesus not only came to deal with and end the curse, but he also came to, to heal the soul that's bruised by it, It's bruised by the fall. And everything that people do to each other, all the, 
the damage we tend to accumulate over time and over a lifetime. He came to restore that. We're in Isaiah, at least I am, in 61, the first couple of verses there. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord. This is the first message Jesus preached. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And this is the work Jesus came to do. Now look at it this way. Jesus, when he healed blind men and healed lepers and healed other people, I don't see people flocking to Jesus to find healing for abuse or help to forgive someone or help for a spiritual need they had. They came for physical needs. And I believe Jesus touched physical needs to show us what he can do for spiritual needs. Because he pointed that out when he healed the blind man and said, I have come that they which see might see not, and they which don't see might see. Teaching us a spiritual application to a physical healing. Jesus came to do that. Beautiful things here. Sometimes they take a long time, but what a beautiful example when someone who has accumulated damage and hurt for a half a lifetime can find freedom and healing because they know Jesus Christ and walk with him. I want to close with this one. Jesus came to offer us something that we all need in this world in which we live. And that is friendship and companionship for life and forever. I love the interaction Andrew had with Jesus when he first met him. He was following John. And the day that John pointed Jesus out and said, Behold the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. Andrew and another man followed Jesus. They walked after Jesus. Jesus turned around and saw him coming and said, What are you looking for? And Andrew said, Lord, where are you staying? And Andrew said, or Jesus said, Come, come and see. And that was late in the day, and Jesus didn't just say, I'm, gonna, I'm staying at such and such an address. He said, come on over. And that was an invitation to come on in. And so they did. It was late. They talked. They stayed there that night. And that was the beginning of three and a half years of Andrew and Jesus walking together. Relationship, friendship, interaction with Jesus. And the last words that Jesus said to Andrew, I believe, along with the rest was in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And so when Jesus went to heaven, Andrew knew Jesus right here. Through his spirit, through his presence, he's right here. And so from the time Andrew met Jesus, to the time Jesus went to heaven, to the time Andrew died and went to be with the Lord, Jesus was a constant presence in Andrew's life. Just was. And that's what he offers all of us. And that's what he wants to be for us. This same Jesus, it says, that went into heaven, it's coming back. See, the one that was before with the Father is the same one that was on the earth. It's the same one that's coming back. It's the same one that's here with us today. And I was trying to decide how to conclude this, and I guess there's a story I read a long time ago, and maybe you have it at home on your shelf. And I'll just relate this. It explains to me, at least, a little illustration of why it is that we need Jesus so much, not as a historical figure or a future figure, 
but someone present now in our life. Max Lucado wrote this, and I can't even remember the name of the story. You might recognize when I tell it. If I don't tell it right, you can correct me afterwards. But so there was a king, he likes to tell stories like that, with a son and a daughter, a prince and a princess, and townsmen, this town down below in the valley. And the prince was a great young man. The princess was a lovely young lady. And uh, the king went to the people one day and said, I'm looking for a husband for my daughter, and I'm going to proclaim a challenge, and the one that can do this will become then the get to marry my daughter. Classic fairy tale, right? So uh, this was a challenge. The volunteers would have to go through this haunted forest, this enchanted place, difficult place, all the way through the forest up to the place where the palace was, and the one that could make it through that dangerous and distracting place could become the one that married the princess. And so uh, there were three volunteers, and the king explained what the rules of the game were. He said uh, two things. First of all, it's going to be a very dangerous place there, a very distracting place there. But listen, he said, because every morning and every evening, I'm going to come to the porch of my palace. And he pulled out a special flute that played a special music. And you listen for this flute. And when you hear it, you'll know which direction to go. You keep your ears on that. And you can find your way all the way through this place to the palace. He said, there's only two flutes like it in all the kingdom. I have one. My son has one. They play the same music. And if you listen for that flute, you can make it. And the second thing, you can each choose one companion to go with you through this dangerous journey. And so one of the volunteers selected a man who was known for bravery and strength. He thought, with this, I can surely make it with a friend like that. The other one chose a man who is known for cunning and wisdom. He said, surely with a man like that, I've got the best chance. And the third one showed up on the day of the challenge with a companion who was hooded, couldn't see who it was. Everybody wondered who it was. And at the signal, they all went into the forest, a place everybody avoided. They went into the forest. And for the next days and weeks, every morning and every evening, the king stepped out on the porch and played his music. And... Uh, for days and weeks, no one came out. And finally, after several weeks, the last one came out, stumbled out of the woods, up to the palace with his companion, and he had made it all the way through there, and he had made it. And all the people came rushing around and wanted to hear the story. How did you make it? That's such an awful place. He said it was terrible in there. He said every, it was an awful place. There was voices and noises and calls and, and so distracting. And, uh, but he said the worst thing was the flutes. Every morning and every evening, flutes sound all around us. Flutes everywhere. And I didn't know which one was the right one. And they asked, well, who is your companion? How did you do it? And the companion took off his helmet, and it was the king's son. And he said, I chose him because he was the only one in all the kingdom that had a flute just like the king's flute. So every morning and every evening, I would listen to it, and I would get to know the music of it, the tone of it, the sound of it. So when the king played his flute, I knew which one it was among all the others that were busily sounding around me. I could pick out the right one, and that's how I made it. And that's why we need Jesus. We are in a world with so much distraction, so many voices, so many ways to get mixed up and confused and drowned. 
But Jesus is the express image of the Father. Jesus says the same thing the Father does. And only by listening to him can we make it through and make it home. So let's make him our companion. We need him for that. God bless you tonight. Let's stand together. If you have a song you can close with, we'll just consider ourselves dismissed after that.